happy to be in the room this morning with you guys. We're going to have a fantastic morning today, guys. We are actually in uh, our our fantastic series called More Than Conquerors. If I haven't got a chance to meet you yet, my name's Kirby. My wife, Jennifer, and I are the youth pastors here at Victory. And I'm so uh, excited to get the opportunity for Pastor Ben to uh, speak to you guys today and bring the message from God's Word and really to continue on with this series that Pastor Ben has just, man, he's hit so many home runs already. Week one and week two just been so amazing of more than conquerors. He talked in week one about conquering fear. It was an incredible message last week, the message on conquering labels. I encourage you, if you haven't listened to those messages, go back on the Victory app, go back on victoryharvest.com. Incredible messages. Uh, and the, the theme verse for our series that we're going over is from Romans chapter 8, verse 37. And it says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Turn to somebody next to you and say, more than conquerors. I love that idea because all these struggles that we go through in life, all these things that we've already talked about in week one and week two, the fear that we go through, the labels that are put on us like Jacob, like Ben talked about last week, all these things that we go through, the struggles that we go up against, the Bible says we don't just conquer those things. It says we're going to continue to live a life of victory over those things. Amen. Do y'all believe that? So today in week three, what I want to continue on with this series is I want to take a look at this concept. And I want to look at conquering idols. Turn to somebody next to you say idols. Now I know that when I say the word idols, that I get some people out there who maybe roll your eyes a little bit, or maybe not roll your eyes, but you just kind of like, no, you could check out a little bit for this one, okay? Because you don't have a little gold statue from Indiana Jones in your closet, right? This, you know that this is one of those messages where you can just kind of get those comfy cushion chairs, just lean back a little bit just right, you know. You know how the Sunday feels sometimes, you know. It just, this, look, the youth pastor's up there. You could just kind of conk out a little bit this Sunday, okay? Because I get it. When I say idols and idol worship, okay, that's, that's, that's so Old Testament, right? That's so 4,000 years ago. That's so not something that we deal with in 2022, right? We don't have any need whatsoever to talk about conquering idols in 2022. Am I right? Because when I talk about idols and I talk about idol worship, maybe it just evokes images in your brain of, you know, when the ancient people would, you know, light a fire or have smoke up in the air, paint their faces and just raise their hands toward their idol, asking that the idol would give them victory over their enemies. Y'all know what I mean? Like, that's so outdated. Nobody does that in 2022. Am I right? It's so Old Testament. It's, I mean, it's just absolutely ridiculous. Nobody struggles with idols, right? Or maybe you think about, you know, how the ancient people would, uh, you know, they would, they, would, they would try and transcend the natural world, you know, the physical world. Y'all know what I'm talking about? That the, the physical world wasn't good enough. They would try and transcend the physical world. Y'all know what I'm talking about. We talk about idol worship. It's all that outdated stuff. Or, or, you know, like they would get in front of their idol. They would fixate on their idol, right? Maybe they'd stare at the idol. They'd, they'd repeat phrases over and over again. Or they'd do repetitive motions over and over and over again, get into a trance-like state. Y'all know what I'm talking about? That, again, that's so... 
that is so outdated, idolatry is, right? I mean, it's, that's not something that we do in 2022. Or even you look back at like the Roman Empire, or you look at the, the kings like King Nebuchadnezzar and those ancient kings who they would deify themselves, right? And they would, they would erect a statue of themselves. They're the leader, they're the king. They would erect a statue of themselves and make every one of their subjects in their nation bow down to them, you know? And you, you, maybe you'd say those prayers out to your leader, to your king, and you would just hope that that, that that leader would be benevolent towards you if you just said the right thing, right? Like hope and change or make Babylon great again, you know, any of those things, right? We just, idolatry is such an outdated concept, right? Like nobody deals with stuff like that in 2022. Y'all got really quiet about the political thing. Amen, everybody. We, we hit maybe a little close to home. I don't know. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to say the other thing I was going to say. All right. Uh, we're just going to move on there. So let me put it this way to everybody today. When we're talking about conquering idols. The base concept of what we're talking about today is idol worship is more than just those little gold statues in Indiana Jones. It's more than maybe the concept that you walked in this morning thinking about when you think about idol worship. And I would even put to you this morning that because when you drove down Florida Boulevard or Central Thruway this morning, you didn't see some gold statue on the street corner and that you don't have a gold statue in your closet, I hope, right? Because of that, I would put to you this morning that it's even more dangerous today because the idols that we serve and the idols that take hold of us are idols in camouflage, idols that you may not physically see. And now, again, some of you guys, like I said, you might have checked out and everything like that. I want to put to you this quote from John Calvin from the uh, 16th century, this great Christian theologian. And this is what he has to say about our susceptibility to worshiping idols. He says that the human heart is a factory of idols. Look at somebody next to you say a factory. And again, I put to you, this man lived in the 16th century of Europe where it was basically illegal to be a Christian, okay? And he said that the human heart is a factory of idols, and he said every one of us is from his mother's womb expert in inventing idols. That should give us all a little bit of a check this morning. Uh, Is your heart beating this morning? My heart's beating this morning, praise the Lord, but it means that I need to be paying attention myself this morning. In Exodus chapter 20, The beginning of the Ten Commandments. I believe it's incredibly important what you start with and what you finish with. And when the Lord begins the Ten Commandments, the two first commandments that he gives, what are they? He says, you must not have any other God before me. That is what idolatry is. It's anything taking the place of God in your life. And then look at the next one that he says. So you must not have any other God before me. And then he says, you must not make for yourself, again, say the word, an idol. Out of, or any kind of image of anything, and this phrase is important, anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. Anything in the heavens, anything unseen, maybe some idea, maybe some philosophy or something here on earth, something created and physical that you can see. Don't worship anything in the place of God. God has to be first in our lives. And then he goes on to continue. He says, you must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. And when I read this in college, I could not help but look at that verse 
And again, I loved God. I had put my faith in God. But when I read that verse, I just kind of looked at it and be like, that sounds a little arrogant. Did anybody else, when you, ever you've read that, you're, or maybe you guys are just so holy that you don't think that about God, okay? But I looked at that and I was like, I mean, come on, like, it's okay. And as I was looking at it and as I was researching about that, the, I, the whole point is this, is it sounds arrogant if a human says it to you because it's a human. But if God, who is your creator, God, who is the source of all love, joy, hope, and peace in the world, and where you can find no joy, hope, and peace in the world beside him, if he says it to you, then it's the most absolutely loving thing that he could say. Because he knows what happens when we put anything else in the place that he has to take in our hearts. He knows what will happen. There's a reason that God put it first. So John Calvin says that about how our heart is a factory of idols. God puts it first in the Ten Commandments. And then, look, uh, one of my favorite preachers today says it this way. He expounds on the idea that Calvin says. He says, the human heart is an idol factory that takes good things. Good things. We're not calling them bad things. The human heart is an idol factory that takes good things like a successful career or love, material possessions, even your family. And it takes those good things and it turns it into ultimate things. Our hearts deify them and put them at the center of our lives because we think that they can give us significance, security, safety, and fulfillment if we attain them. And so here's the first point that I want us to all look at today is this, is that idol worship is not some outdated concept. Idol worship is a lifelong struggle that we all face. It's a lifelong struggle that we all face. And I would even put to you, if you have kids or you know kids, it's something that we do from the time that we're born, right? Where we just take something and we make it so incredibly important. And you guys have kids, y'all know what I'm talking about? Like, like a toy that they didn't even know existed five seconds ago. At Walmart, their, their world is crushed if they don't have it. You know what I'm talking about? Your kids don't do that? No, okay, awesome. So, for example, so a, a couple years ago when the World Cup came around, I like soccer, I like watching the tournament, and my boys were a little bit younger back in the day, and I wanted them to get involved in the tournament and everything like that, and I had this great dad idea. And I was like, you know, they're not super excited or interested or whatever. I tell, Look, I'm going to tell them to pick a team that we can, like, support through the World Cup, this was just like two or three days before the World Cup started. I was like, let's pick a team, and then, you know, you can be excited as you follow along and all that. And so the, bo- the boys both, both picked England, okay? And I'm like, okay, that's a good pick, England, whatever. And so three days before, they didn't know anything about the English football team. But three days later, they knew all about Harry Kane, and he was the striker. And so because he was on England, he was the best striker in the world. And they know about Jordan Pickford. He's the goalie, and since he's the goalie for England, he's got to be the best in the world. And then they knew about Jaden Sancho. They knew all the names. They were checking. They were following every single game. They wake up. Is England playing today? Is England playing today? Is England playing today? And so the dad thing in my mind as we're going on, I'm like, this worked. They're having fun. They're following along with it. But the dad thing in my, my brain, you, you ladies know the dads don't always think things totally all the way through. I didn't realize that my kids have a one out of 32 chance of picking the champion. That means they have a 31 out of 32 chance 
of their hopes and dreams that didn't exist three days ago being absolutely crushed. Y'all know what I'm talking about? (laughs) And England went a long way. They were like in the final four or something. Then when they lost, no joke, my oldest son, Rylan, I think he was like six at the time, they lose. And he's just looking at me through tears about a team of players he didn't know existed like a week before. He's just in tears and he looks at me and he's, Dad, I'm never going to watch another sports game ever. And I'm not saying that to say that my kids have made an idol out of the English World Cup soccer team, but I'm saying it to, to just show us how it's just our nature, right? We take things that maybe we didn't even know existed a few seconds or a few years ago in the span of our life, and we make them so ultimate. We, we make them so central to our happiness. We make them so central to our significance in our life. But the truth is there's only one thing that can be central to the significance of who you are as a person. And that is God and his love for you. You were designed and created to have God as the central part of your being, who you are. His acceptance and his love is the only thing that can power you through the struggles of life. His love and his acceptance of you is the only thing that can transform you into being somebody who is more than a conqueror in the things that we face in life. C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says that when Satan put it into the heads of our ancestors, what he put in their heads was the idea that we could be like gods. You all remember that in the uh, book of Genesis? They could set up on their own as if they had created it themselves. They could be their own masters. They could invent some sort of happiness for themselves outside of God, apart from God. And he says, and out of that hopeless attempt to find some kind of happiness outside of God, has come nearly everything that we call human history. Money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, slavery. The long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. And I love what he says. The reason why it can never succeed is this. God made us. God made you. He invented us as a man invents an engine. And a car is made to run on gasoline, and it wouldn't run properly on anything else. All the men say amen. Now, God designed the human machine to run on himself, and he himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn. I love that. He says, there is no other. So the story of humanity, the story of our lives, is this idea of putting something else in the place of God, something that can never satisfy And from it comes so much of the suffering and the pain that we see in the world and that we see in our lives. So in 2022, if it's something that we all face, it's a struggle that we all have, a great way for us this morning to take a look at what kind of idol is trying to creep into your life is to ask this question. And if you're taking notes this morning, you can pull it up on the Victory app. Take a look at what this question is. It says, what person or thing is so central to my life that should I lose it, my life would feel hardly worth living? You maybe don't have a gold statue in your closet, but has something taken the centrality of God in your life? Maybe, maybe some of you might say this. I only have worth if I'm loved and respected by people. And when you're not loved and respected by someone that day, your whole identity is crushed. You're worshiping the idol of approval. I only have worth if I'm highly productive and I'm getting a lot done. And if something comes in like a sickness or something else that makes it where you can't be productive, you can't get a lot done, you're crushed. 
because you've been serving and worshiping, putting central to your life the idol of work. I only have worth if a particular social or professional group lets me in. That's the idol of acceptance. I only have worth if Mr. or Mrs. Wright is in love with me. The idol of relationship. I only have worth if my political cause is making progress. That's the idol of ideology. I only have worth if people are dependent on me and need me. And then when they move out of the house, you're crushed. You don't know who you are. It's the idol of necessity. I only have worth if I'm completely free from responsibilities and obligations. That's the idol of independence. The last one we'll look at, I only have worth if I'm able to provide a certain level of income or material comfort for myself or for my family. And if, again, something happens, some career-ending injury or you have to go on disability for a little bit or whatever, you're just absolutely crushed, you might be serving the idol of possessions. And there are so many more. There's so many more. That's one of the reasons why idolatry is a struggle that we all face. And, again, why God says it the way he says it in the Ten Commandments. It can literally be anything in heaven above or earth beneath that takes the place of God in your heart. It can be anything at all times. It's a struggle that we all face. But when we do that, when we take anything out, it's like C.S. Lewis said, it's like putting dirt in the gas tank of your heart. It's only going to end badly. So how do we conquer idols? If it's something that's at all times, we're always facing. If our heart that we carry around with us all day long is a factory longing to create an idol, how do we conquer idols? We're going to look at, again, if you might have thought that idols is an Old Testament thing, we're going to look at a story from the Old Testament, from the book of Judges, about how to conquer this cycle of idolatry and idol worship. Because if you look at the book of Judges from beginning to end, I believe that the book of Judges is itself a study of the pattern of the idol worship cycle. It's just how it works. In the Ten Commandments, it was when God had rescued his people out of Egypt, out of slavery from the Egyptian people for 400 years. And when he gave them those Ten Commandments, it was his way of saying, this is the way to live a happy, fulfilled life. This is the way to please me. This is the way that you can find fulfillment. And this is the way that you, in your life, you follow these things, you follow after me. And he brings them into the promised land after that, after generations and generations. He brings them out of Egypt, out of slavery, brings them into the promised land, gives them miraculous victory after miraculous victory, splits the Red Sea. Any of you guys seen that old Charlton Heston movie? He splits the Red Sea, does the miracle, splits the Jordan River where they can walk into the promised land, does all these miracles. And then we get to the book of Judges where they're settling into the promised land. And as they're settling into the promised land, The way it begins is the Israelites start to slide into idol worship. They forget about God. That's the way the Bible says. They forget God. They begin to serve the idols of the people that are around them. They take the centrality of God and remove it from their hearts and put something else there that is a false God. And it says from there they slide into wickedness. And then the Bible says that God gives them over to the people that are around them. It doesn't say that God enslaves them. It says that God just gives them to the people around them. It says they've already relinquished God's protection over their life because of the idol worship. They've taken him out of the central place. They've said basically to him, you are no longer our God. And he says, okay. And here's just a a free nugget for you today. 
sometimes the worst punishment that God can give us when we're in a life of sin is to give us exactly what we want. I'm just going to leave that there this morning. But the book of Judges is that cycle. It begins and it goes over and over. They forget God. They worship the idols around them. They're enslaved by the people around them. And it says after a time of years, however long it is, they remember God. They remember God, it says. So idol worship always starts by what? Forgetting God. They forget God. Then they put something else there. They go into slavery and it says they remember God. They cry out to him. And God says, "Uh uh-uh. No, that's not what happens. When they turn to God, what does the Bible say? Draw near to me, I will draw near to you. When they turn to God, the Bible says that he would raise up what he called a judge or a rescuer to come and rescue them from the slavery of the people around them. And there'd be peace in the land. You'll see the, the cycle there. There'd be peace in the land, and then it would all start again. They'd forget. They'd worship idols. They'd be enslaved. They'd cry out and remember. The rescuer would come, peace. And then it would start over and 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 over again. How do we look at a permanent fix to this? Let's look at the temporary fix in the book of Judges, and then we'll look at a a permanent fix. So today, as we're taking this deep dive, we're going to be looking at the story of Ehud and Eglon. And all the men can say amen this morning if you know that story. Yes, it's that one. I love this story. Um, It's not a G-rated story, I'll say that. Um, Because it's the story of an Israelite assassin from 4,000 years ago. He kills the evil king who's taken control over them. We'll read about it a little bit more. But I'm I'm not being preacher-like today. We're going to get to point two before I even get to the scripture, okay? Point two is this. If we look at the pattern of the book of Judges and see what happens, we all face idolatry. And the second point is this, is idolatry enslaves. Idolatry enslaves. If you weren't even already seeing it, man, if you're serving the idol of relationship, how many of y'all know people who have just stayed in abusive relationships for far too long? Why? Because they only feel worth if they have somebody there. Why why in the world do, do people make so many sacrifices for their job and maybe leave their kids on the back burner because they're serving the idol of work. They're, they're making sacrifices of doing things that they never thought they would do because they're serving the idol. They're enslaved to the idol. And it could be for so many of these different things. Idolatry and slaves. How do we conquer it? How do we get freedom? Let's look at the story of Ehud and Eglon in Judges chapter 3. And again, we see the pattern. It says, once again, once again, The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight, meaning they've forgotten him. They're worshiping the gods around them. It brings them to wickedness. And it says, the Lord gave King Eglon of Moab control over Israel. See that word, control? Control. He gave it over. That's what the Bible says. He gave control over Israel because they're evil. Eglon enlisted the Ammonites and Amalekites as allies. He went out, he defeated Israel, took possession of Jericho, the city of Palms. And the Israelites served Eglon and Moab for 18 years. They were slaves to Eglon for 18 years. It took them 18 years before they remembered God. God had done miracle after miracle to get them out of Egypt. Miracle after miracle to open up the Red Sea, open up the Jordan River, giving them miraculous victory over all the people in the land. And they forgot him. And they're enslaved, they're enslaved for 18 years, and it takes them that long to remember. And then what does it say? They cried out to the Lord for help. Turn somebody and say, cry out. 
And the Lord again raised up a rescuer to save them. I love that word, a rescuer to save them. His name was Ehud, son of Gera, a left-handed man of the tribe of Benjamin. The Israelites sent Ehud to deliver their tribute money to King Eglon of Moab. This is something that they did when they were enslaved. They would have to bring him this big tribute, you know, like mob payment money, you know, whatever. So they, they realized the Lord has raised up Ehud. God gives Ehud the vision of what he's supposed to do to free the people of Israel, okay? And again, this is not a G-rated story. This is from 4,000 years ago. If you, if you don't understand and have a concept of what the brutality of the world was like 4,000 years ago, uh, you cannot see that, look, what God had Ehud do was one of the most compassionate things that he could have had him do for the people of Israel at that time. And what he had Ehud do, you'll see it in the next verse. It says, so Ehud made a double-edged dagger that was about a foot long, and he strapped it to his right thigh, keeping it hidden under his clothing. And he brought the tribute money to Eglon, who was very fat. The Bible wants to throw that detail in there, just so you know. The evil king who's over them. It's like a little nanny nanny boo boo from thousands of years, you know. Like, And he was stinky too, you know. Maybe I just have kids, I don't know. Um, but no, that is actually important, okay. It's not shaming him or anything like that. What it's doing, it's an important... Uh, it's an important detail because, again, we're talking 4,000 years ago. And to get food was not as simple as hopping in the minivan and going down to the grocery store. To make food, to get food, all that stuff, it was incredibly difficult, okay? Agriculture was still incredibly primitive. And so for them to not just mention that he was fat, but to say that he was very fat, meant that he was getting fat at the expense of the people that were underneath him. That means that the Israelites who were under him were most likely starving because he was so fat. Again, that's not to shame anything. It's just the important detail uh, that the Bible's pointing out. It says, so, so check this out. So Ehud, God raises him up. He makes a dagger. He goes to Eglon to deliver the tribute money. Why did he make a dagger when he's going to go deliver the tribute money to Eglon? Anybody just shout it out? He's going to kill him. He's an assassin, right? But look at this detail that I never noticed before until the last time that I read this scripture. After delivering the payment, in verse 18, Ehud started home with those who had helped carry the tribute. I never noticed this before when I read this. So he went and delivered the tribute with the dagger under his clothes, and then he starts going home. Now, all the men in here who can imagine, picture yourself, maybe everybody in here, picture yourself surrounded by guards of spears and all that stuff, and you're just, you know, one lone guy up against this big king and all his guard. He has the dagger, he goes, and then he goes home. What do we think happened? He chickened out. That's the only way I can read this. I've tried to look at every other interpretation. I can't read it any other way. I'm not trying to give you the Kirby Pearson translation. That's the only way I can read it. He goes and he chickens out. But look at where his change of heart comes. Check this out. This is why it's not just a story of brutality, not just a story of assassination. It's a story about idolatry. Look at what happens. Look where the change happens. But when Ehud reached the stone idols near Gilgal, he turned back. I love that. I absolutely love that. See, because the king in this story, who's starving the Israelites of the life that God has for them, represents the grasp that the idols have on your life. And maybe you already kind of knew before you went in that something's got a stronghold over your life. And maybe you chickened out time and time and time again. 
But look, Ehud got to a place where he came face to face with what the problem was. And he said, I can't pass these idols without doing what God's called me to do. And it's incredibly important that we look at the place of Gilgal. Because if you've read the Bible before, we talked about the story of the Israelites a little bit briefly already, okay? But the Gilgal was the place where when God brought them into the promised land, it was basically right by the Jordan River. When God split the Jordan River like he did the Red Sea, it was a miracle. They walked through on dry land right on the other side of the Jordan River. They placed a, a, a memorial, an altar of stones at this place called Gilgal. And it was a memorial. What is a memorial for? For you to what? Remember. To remember, to remember, to remember what God had done, to remember his miraculous power, to remember all the miracles that he's done to deliver them, to remember all the great love, to remember his character, to remember who he is, the power that he has, what he desires, the plans and purposes that he has for his people. And at this place, the very place that was supposed to be a place where they remember who God is and what God has done, they've forgotten. And it wakes Ehud up from his apathy. It wakes him up from his cowardice. It wakes him up. And he turns back. I love that. And so it says, as we continue on, he came to Eglon and he said, I have a secret message for you. He did not want to hear this message, but he didn't know that. So the king commanded his servants, be quiet. He sent them out of the room. Ehud walked over to Eglon, who was sitting alone in a cool upstairs room. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And as King Eglon rose from his seat. As he said that, check this out. As he said that, the king who had been enslaving them had to get up off his throne. Do y'all see that? The beauty of that? The king gets off of his seat and Ehud reaches with his left hand, pulls out the dagger strapped to his right thigh, plunged it into the king's big belly. The dagger went so deep that the handle disappeared beneath the king's fat. So Ehud did not pull out the dagger and the king's bowels emptied. You're not going to find that verse at Hobby Lobby, okay? (laughs) But all the men, don't you kind of want it in your man cave, right? You kind of do, right? So it may not be as inspiring as Philippians 4.13, but I'm going to tell you something. To the people of Israel in that day, it meant freedom. It meant freedom. And I love the next scripture. Just kind of show you what kind of man Ehud was. And uh, then Ehud closed and locked the doors of the room and escaped down the toilet, everybody. <laughs> that, is, that is some dedication this man had, right? Uh, we'll skip on to verse 26, and it says, While the servants were waiting outside, Ehud escaped, and look at this, passing the stone idols on his way to Sarah. He could pass them with a clear conscience. Now, I knew him that he had done what God had called him to do to free his people from the grasp that idolatry had over them. He could pass those stone idols, and when he arrived in the hill country of Ephraim, look at what God wants to do when he frees you from idolatry this morning. Ehud sounded a call to arms to rise up and to finish, to not just conquer Eglon, but to conquer over everybody and get some freedom. He issued a sound, a sound, a call to arms. He led the Israelites down the hills and it says, follow me for the Lord has given you victory over Moab, your enemy. 
You're more than conquerors this morning. He's already given you the victory this morning. And so they followed him. The Israelites took control of the crossings. Uh, they, uh, it says they went on. They attacked the Moabites, killed 10,000 of their strongest. And it says Moab was conquered by Israel that day. And there was, say this word, peace. Say peace. There was peace in the land for 80 years. There was peace. Do we see the cycle of what happens? They forget. They forget. They put something else in their hearts, and then it just enslaves them. And they have to cry out to God for a rescuer to come. And the rescuer comes and brings them out of the slavery and brings them to freedom and brings them to peace. And so what is our last point today? It might not sound totally uh, correct right off the bat, but the, the last point that I want us to look at today is this, is my idols are conquered when I remember Jesus. When I remember Jesus. Some of you guys are sharp out there. You're like, how do we get that from a story about Ehud? And like stabbing a fat king. How do we get there, right? How do we get to Jesus? Well, I, I believe this, that in this story, the truth in this story is that you and I are not Ehud. We're not Ehud. Don't stab all your problems this morning, okay? <laughs> We're not Ehud. But Ehud, just like Jesus said on the road to Emmaus, when he appeared to his disciples after he had died on the cross for our sins and was raised again to new life, he appeared to his disciples and it says that he looked at every story from the Old Testament, including the story of Ehud and Eglon. And it says he told them of the scriptures concerning himself. How does Ehud and Eglon point us to Jesus and the victory and the conquering power that we have through him? Ehud points us to Jesus. Because Ehud went in and he, he freed the people of Israel, but he went in at the risk of his life to vanquish the evil king, right? But Jesus, how did Jesus do it? Jesus didn't just do it simply at the risk of his life. He did it at the certain loss of his life. By going to the cross, he was standing right toe-to-toe with the devil. and was saying, I know that I'm going to lose my life, but it's the only way to give my people, my sons and daughters, victory over the idols that are holding sway over them. And look at, look at Ehud. Ehud gave victory to the Israelites. He gave them freedom by piercing the king. But how did Jesus give us freedom? By being pierced himself. He's so much better than Ehud. God used Ehud in that moment, but Jesus is so, he's the better Ehud. He's the greater Ehud, the true Ehud that Ehud's pointing to for all of us. The way that we get from idolatry in our lives to freedom, the way we get from the slavery of idolatry to the freedom of conquering those idols once and for all in our life is by remembering Jesus, looking to Jesus, tearing down those idols at Gilgal and instead putting that memorial back up again where we remember where we remember, we remember, we remember. We never forget what God has done for us. We never forget how great his love is for us. We never forget that he was pierced for us. We never forget the blood that he shed for us. We never forget. In Colossians chapter 1 verse 13, I love this. Because remember the pattern. Remember the pattern. Remember the pattern. They needed a rescuer. And what does it say? For Jesus has rescued us. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his son. The idols want to keep you in darkness. They want to keep you chasing a carrot that you'll never get. 
But Jesus says, I want to bring you out of that darkness. I have already brought you out of that darkness, brought you into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, a restored purpose, a restored significance in our life, the forgiveness of our sins. And continuing on, Paul says it later in verses 19 and 20. It says, through him, through him, he would reconcile to himself all things. And look at the phrase again. Whether things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. What, what did God, what, what was the Ten Commandments? What was the, the whole idea of idolatry? If you take something heaven above or earth beneath and you distort it, you take a good thing and you make it the ultimate thing. And I I was curious about this word reconcile. In the Greek, what this word means is it means to bring things back to a state of harmony. How beautiful is that? Because that's what idolatry is. It's disharmony in your life. It's taking a good thing and making it God in your life. But it says only by looking at Jesus and the peace that he made through his blood shed on the cross, do we see how good God is. Do we see how great his love is for us? Do we see the depths to which he would go to free us from slavery? The depths to which he would go to free us from the bondage that sin and idol worship wants to have in our lives. We can see and through that, we begin to reconcile and see that, look, God is putting everything back in perspective. God's putting everything back in a state of harmony in my lives where, yes, I can can enjoy my family the right way, not make my family a God in my life. I can enjoy the material blessings that God has given to me. And like Pastor Ben said so many times, don't let those possessions possess me. I can, all these things, I can enjoy the correct way that God has intended for it to be because I can see how much he loves me because of the blood that he shed on the cross for me. Like I said, we're not Ehud in this story. Ehud points to Jesus. And I want to tell you this morning, Jesus is issuing a call to arms to all of us, just like Ehud did that day. He's doing the same thing to all of us today, to rise up. See, he's already vanquished that idol in your life on the cross. He's already vanquished that idol. He's already put things back in perspective. That that idol has not died for you. That idol did not create you. That idol cannot give you purpose. That idol cannot give you significance. Only the God who created you. Only the God who has a plan and a purpose for your life. Only the God who loves you so much that when you were down in your sins and you couldn't pay your way out of the debt, he died on the cross for you to pay your debt that you could never pay. It's only when we remember Jesus and look to him, he's issuing the call to arms today that we would rise up and remember him. And so what I want to do today, everybody just bow your heads and close your eyes as we finish up. The truth is this, is that Jesus' blood forgave us of every sin, every time we chased after an idol. The reason God put those at the beginning of the Ten Commandments was it really is the precursor to every other sin. You forget God in some way, you're going to chase after something else. Whether it's lust, whether it's anger, murder, whether it's anything. 
And so when Jesus died on the cross, it wasn't just for some surface behavior that you did. It was for forgetting him and chasing after him, worshiping something else in your life. And today he's calling you out of that slavery. When he rose again from the grave, he was showing you. He was He was cashing the check that he wrote on the cross, showing you that he has the power, that he has that great love for you. When he rose again, he was showing you that he's calling you to new life today, to leave beside the idols, to tear down maybe the idols you've built up in your heart, the very place that God has put in you to remember him. And so how do we get to that life of purpose? How do we get away from that? life of slavery, of idol worship and all that. How do we get forgiveness for our sins? It's very simple, the Bible says. We just admit that we've done wrong. We say, God, I'm a sinner. I've messed up. And the Bible says we look to him in our hearts. We believe in him. We confess that he's the Lord of our lives. (laughs) Nothing else is the Lord. Only him. The Bible says when we do that, we are saved we get called to that new life of purpose where every day we remember and we walk out the plan and the purpose and the joy and the peace and the love that he has for us. If you want that this morning, everybody's head is bowed, everybody's eyes is closed. This morning, we just want to pray with you. We're not going to call you out, sing you out. You get to stay right where you're at. We just want you to do some physical sign of raising your hand this morning. If you want to pray that prayer, just some sign from you to God this morning right now. That's, I want to do this, God. I want to give my life to you. If that's you this morning, I'd ask right now that you just raise your hand. Amen, amen. See those hands. Amen. If you're joining in with us online this morning as well, you can join in this prayer with us as well. Everybody in the room, let's pray out loud to help those who prayed this prayer. And guys, if you raise your hand this morning, it's not the words of this prayer that save you. It's your heart and faith reaching out to him. Jesus has already saved you. You're just accepting the gift of forgiveness this morning. So everybody in the room, let's let's say this prayer out loud. Say, dear Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner. I admit I've made mistakes and that I've chased after other things than you. But today I admit that I believe you, that you died for me, that you forgave me, that you rose again I confess you're the Lord of my life and I commit my life to you in Jesus name I pray everybody say amen this morning and put your hands together for those who prayed that prayer this morning if you raised your hand this morning we are so incredibly proud of you we just ask one thing from you this morning again we're not calling you out we just ask that you would text the word save to this number 66599 it just We don't share this, uh, your information or anything. It's just a way for us to get some next steps for you of what living out that life looks like. Because we would just love to celebrate with you. And if you prayed that prayer this morning, we'd love to celebrate in baptism with you this morning. A sign that you have given your life to Jesus this morning. We'd love to do that. Otherwise, guys, thank you so much for being here this morning. God bless you. Go out to baptism in the foyer. We can't wait to see you guys next week. Amen.